Thanks for listening to the Mornings with Carmen LaBerge podcast, made available thanks to support from listeners just like you. Your daily encouragement that God has the world in the hollow of his hand. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. If we're going to fly, we fly like eagles. I'm Carmen LaBerge, and we are proving that um, human beings are still required because, you know, automation can't do it all. Good morning. Good morning. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen here on the Faith Radio Network. Paul Perot is here as well. Good morning, Good sir. morning. You want to explain to people what happened yesterday? Okay. I mean, you know, I wasn't here and you let the ship burn down. <laughs> no, oh, no, no. That's not what happened. No, no, no. That's not what happened. Okay, yeah, for about an hour during our show yesterday, we had a little technical glitch where a switcher failed. And mm-hmm. everything is so computerized these days. When, so when one little component fails, it can cause all sorts of big problems, and it did. Thankfully, all the audio was saved. So if you missed any portion of the show that I was hosting yesterday on Carmen's behalf, all you have to do is go to MyFaithRadio.com or wherever you get your podcast. You can listen to the full show there. Yeah, and they were great conversations. So I really encourage you to do that. Um, if you're not already subscribed to the Mornings with Carmen podcast, uh, you ought to be. So please, um, please do that. You can do that at myfaithradio.com. Also, while you're there, I would really encourage you to jump in on the reading the Bible together with us. Um, we are currently in um, a study of Second Timothy. So join us. Join us, please. Um, you do that at myfaithradio.com. It's not too late. All right. So. You're growing your faith verse of the day, growing your faith verse of the day. Yep. Mm -hmm. It's actually two verses from Matthew chapter seven, verses seven and eight. So we want to get into the word of God every single day that the word of God might get into us in order that when the world squeezes us, what comes out is grace and truth, right? Uh, You know, everybody's full of something. I want you to be full of grace and truth because the world is going to squeeze you today. And so let's, uh, let's get into the word of God. Matthew seven. Verses 7 and 8. Context here, Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is speaking. Keep on asking, and you will receive what you ask for. Keep on seeking, and you will find. Keep on knocking, and the door will be open to you. For everyone who asks, receives. Everyone who seeks, finds. And to everyone who knocks, the door will be opened. Now, does this mean, let me just ask you here, does this mean what it sounds like it means on the face of it? I mean, if you just ripped these verses completely out of context and you don't know, you didn't know everything that you think you know about um, the rest of the Sermon on the Mount and Jesus who is speaking here and the context. I mean, if you didn't know any of that, does this mean what it sounds like it means? Keep on asking and you'll receive whatever you ask for. Keep on seeking and you will find. Keep on knocking and the door will be open to you. For everyone who asks receives, everyone who seeks finds, and to everyone who knocks, the door will be opened. Is God under some obligation to give people whatever they ask of him? Is God's will subject to the will of human beings? Is God's will subject to the will of every human being? I mean, if that were true, would God still be God or would we be God's? So this verse can be and oftentimes is 
utterly ripped out of context to imagine that God's like a genie in a bottle. If you rub him enough times just the right way, he will perform for you. Uh, That is clearly not what Jesus is saying. So what do these verses mean? Um, This isn't a passage about getting what we want. It is about the God who Jesus invites us to address. It is about God's goodness, God's approachability, um, how we approach and address God as our Father who is so, so good. These verses are about prayer and prayerfulness and prayerlessness or self-dependence and self-reliance. These verses are about persistence in prayer, believing in the goodness of God when it seems your prayers are not being answered. These verses are about trusting God to be God and trusting God to be good. The fuller context of these verses is the Sermon on the Mount, um, Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. They ought to be read, received, and considered in that context. So today's verses are really good reminders that we can't take verses of the Bible and imagine that they're like, I don't know, what you might find in a fortune cookie, or that God is like a genie in a bottle subject to our bidding and our will. Quite the contrary. But God is a good, good father. And Jesus provides us open access to him. It delights the father to give good gifts to his children. So ask. That's Jesus's point here. Don't neglect prayer. Don't fail to go to the one who can give you all you need. Ask God for protection and provision and intervention and miracles and keep on asking. Here's one more thing I don't want you to miss in these verses, and it's the word everyone. Jesus is breaking down a huge barrier here, a huge wall of separation. Jesus is destroying the idea that you have to go through a certain special person, a priest, a prophet. You have to go to a certain place. You have to take on a certain posture in order to talk to God. Jesus makes clear that the gift of prayer is a gift for everyone. It's a gift for all times and all places and every person, everyone. All are valid. All are invited. All are instructed to pray. Everyone. He opens the way for everyone to enter through him into the presence of the Father. That's incredible. Don't miss that. And if you hadn't yet thought of what to pray today, well, send up a prayer of thanksgiving for prayer itself. We have a good, good Father, and he invites us to pray. One of the things you may have heard uh, in the last couple of days is that the state of Florida, through its Board of Education, has made a statewide change in its curriculum And if you are to believe the vice president of the United States, then Florida is going to teach that slavery is good for enslaved people. Could that possibly be true? We're going to find out next. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. Dr. Mark Caleb Smith is joining us from Cedarville University. Good morning, sir. Morning, Carmen. How are you doing today? I am well, thank you. I am well. All right, so this is a conversation at the intersection of politics and history and education and maybe interpretation. So the vice president um, has rebuked the Florida Board of Education for its new standards on how black history uh, is going to be taught in schools. Um, Is she right that the state of Florida is now going to be teaching that uh, enslavement was good for the enslaved? Uh, no, she's not, she's not right at all. Um, 
Yeah, it shouldn't surprise us, I guess, Carmen, that history, especially teaching about history involving race and slavery, uh, is extremely controversial. Uh, it's a political hot button, and that's it's been that way for a long time. Um, but uh, Vice President Harris's criticisms are really, I think, unfounded, given the standards as they exist. Um, I agree that it's a it's a point of nuance, and it's maybe something subtle. But the standards basically argue that slaves develop skills and resourcefulness while while slaves uh, that provided for their families while they were slaves, but also uh, led to opportunities for them after slavery was abolished. And so, you know, she's twisting that to mean slavery was beneficial for the slaves well, I guess that's true in a very narrow sense, but they're arguing that slaves were able to move past slavery in part because of things that they learned while they were slaves and then they provided for their families and then for generations of people as a result. So controversy, easy to pigeonhole this and make a political point, which is really what the vice president's trying to do. Um, the curriculum, if you were to actually read the curriculum, talks about just how awful slavery is, harsh yes. conditions, consequences, yes. um, undernourishment, climate, infant and child mortality rates of the enslaved, um, how the South tried to prevent slaves from escaping, their efforts to end the Underground Railroad, the overwhelming death rates caused um, by, by practices. I mean, on and on and on and on and on. If you actually read it, um, then you'll recognize that this, that this one point that's been drawn out and I believe misinterpreted um, is not what the substance of the curriculum is designed to teach. No, I think that's exactly right. Um, you know, history is complicated. History is, is difficult and it's multidimensional. In other words, it's multifaceted to the point where you can't just hone in on one particular element um, and then understand the whole of what you're looking at. And so uh, I, I, this is difficult, especially when you're teaching elementary students, middle school students, but even when you're teaching high school and college students, uh, nuance can get lost. You know, people have a very particular background. They want history to justify their their own ideological beliefs often. And so they'll seize upon something and they'll use that to argue a particular political point or an ideological uh, perspective. And so history is easy to distort like this. But good history, I think, truthful history, uh, tries to see the big picture tries to understand the totality of an institution like slavery and all of its horrors, um, but at the same time, try to explain something like, well, after Reconstruction and during Reconstruction, former slaves did quite well for a long time, created businesses, voted at high rates, um, were successful in a wide variety of industries. Well, how do you explain that? And that's part of what this discussion is trying to do. Well, it's explained in part by things that they learned when they were slaves that they were then able to leverage into profitability, at least until uh, Jim Crow is asserted and things become much, much more difficult for African-Americans. Yeah, one of these conversations you can have as a Christian is, I mean, and again, please do not misunderstand neither Dr. Mark Caleb Smith nor Carmen as you are as you are thinking about these things. Neither one of us in any way is is supporting um, the, the history of enslaving people. We're not a fan of it today. We're not a fan of it in history. Um, we wish it were not ever true. Um, and, and we want people to experience emancipation. And 
Um, And so hear that, hear that. That's the starting point of this conversation. As a part of this conversation, we look back over the the very complex history of the United States of America. Um, Sometimes when we look at particular, the stories of particular people, like they were catechized as children um, in the Christian faith by the people who were enslaving their parents. And the children were catechized right along with the children of their um, quote-unquote owners. Like, it is a complicated mess. Um, And so, as Christians, how do we engage the conversation today? How do we teach history, um, the truth of it, the horrors of it, but also um, the reality reality of it? So, I like this um, language of building steel men instead of straw men. You can, you can make a straw man type argument um, out of just about anything. But instead, let's really be seeking to build each other up and, and argue um, the principles of charity and truth. Um, you know, like, is it the truth? Is it fair to all concerned? Does it build goodwill and better friendships? Will it be beneficial to all concerned? I realize it's the rotary four-way test, but it's a good, it's a good test for this kind of conversation that we're having um, in the culture today. Um, Mark, let's, uh, let's move away from this here in just a moment. And I'd love to have you, um, help us understand what is happening in terms of the way the United States Supreme Court is being characterized, um, particularly by the media and how that is changing our perception of this, um, third and essential branch of the U.S. government. So we're talking with Dr. Mark Caleb Smith from Cedarville University. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen, and we'll be right back. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen. As you know, this is a rebroadcast of the live radio show carried on the Faith Radio Network. There's a lot going on at Faith Radio. Tons of free resources just waiting for you and for you to share with others at MyFaithRadio.com. How does that all happen? Well, it happens through listener support. So Faith Radio, Mornings with Carmen, all available because of listener support from listeners, well, just like you. If you're a supporter, thank you so very much. If you'd like to become a supporter today, just visit MyFaithRadio.com. And again, thanks for being a part of what we do every day at Mornings with Carmen. Dr. Mark Caleb Smith from Cedarville University has joined us. Um, Mark, you have a... you have a new title, new position, new new responsibilities. What's going on with you? Uh, yeah, I'm actually starting a new position uh, this fall. Still at Cedarville University. Um, for the last seven years, I've been a department chair of the History and Government Department. Uh, starting this year, though, I will be dean of the new uh, School of Arts and Humanities, and so I'll be overseeing uh, four departments here at the university. Um, different responsibilities to some extent and something I'm really looking forward to. That's awesome. That's awesome. Well, blessings on you as you make that transition upon those who, um, who will be, you know, joining the faculty um, as well as you, as you guys, you know, sort of grow, grow in this direction in this area. It's very, very exciting. Um, Talk with us. Yeah. Talk with us about the U S Supreme court, like remind us about, you know, the three essential branches of the U S government. And then, you know, this sort of, fourth weird branch that we have that we don't talk much about, but we, but it's, it's a reality and we deal with it, the administrative state. Um, talk with us about the Supreme Court and how um, it, it being constantly maligned by the media does change our view of it. 
Yeah. Uh, so we, we have, as you said, we have three branches of government in our in our constitution. Uh, we have a legislative branch, an, an executive branch, and a judicial branch. And of course, the Supreme Court is part of the judicial branch, part of the federal court system. And the judicial branch is different from the other two uh, because it's really designed to be isolated from politics. It's designed to be independent. Uh, the justices get a lifetime appointment. And uh, because of that, there should be free from bias and free from pressure as they make decisions that could have a significant effect, uh, not only on the other branches of government, but on the entire nation. What we're seeing right now, I think, is a pretty concerted effort uh, out of the more progressive part of our politics to undermine and to really question the legitimacy of the court. Um, for a variety of reasons, they're making these arguments, I, but I think this really goes back to uh, Dobbs, the Dobbs decision handed down last year uh, that overturns uh, the right to an abortion within the Constitution. And since then, you've seen a really stepped up uh, attack, I believe, uh, on the legitimacy of the court. Um, and, and I think that it is having an effect of some kind. Uh, people are subject to these kinds of criticisms. They begin to think of the court as just another political branch of government, and they want to drag it into the middle of these sort of partisan fights, uh, which are clearly breaking out. Um, and, and there is some evidence that the court's prestige has declined as a result of this. Um, you even have justices going public and uh, writing op-eds and making public statements to defend themselves and to defend the institution. Uh, and this is just something that uh, we have never seen, at least uh, not that I can recall. So um, when you think about the way in which the justices of the Supreme Court have enjoyed um, over our nation's history, they have enjoyed maybe a, a different, I, I don't know, I don't know if it's status, but it's certainly stature. Right. Um, they have they have been trusted to. I'll use the term police themselves, right. um, and not only has that been brought into question, which you know draws into question sort of their judgment. I don't know. I you know what, what does that look like when you have the justices of the country sort of under the judgment? Um. I think it's a it's a real dicey situation because you have uh, the president and members of Congress, especially the United States Senate right now, pressuring the court to adopt certain reforms, um, which really goes against the entire design of the court itself. Uh, as you said, we've entrusted the court to police itself and to set its own ethical standards. And I think that that they have to be allowed to do that. Um, if the other branches of government can twist the court and pressure it in the direction they wish, then the court really is losing the independence it was designed to have. And so, you know, I, I think that these are unconstitutional arguments that are being made about the court, um, and they're potentially quite dangerous, uh, not only for the future of the court, but for the, the future of the country. Um, you know, there are arguments about packing the court. There are arguments about electing members of the court to try to circumvent it. Um, and, you know, this isn't going to go away with the conservative majority on the court making sometimes quite conservative rulings, but not always. Um, you can expect the court to still be in the middle of a lot of these cultural conflicts. Yeah, I don't like when the court is characterized as 
um, Democrat and Republican or or right. even conservative and progressive. Like I, I really I do not like hearing that. I don't like hearing them characterized in those ways because I don't like being pigeonholed. Um, you know, I'm a person who has an evangelical faith. Um, there are things that evangelical people have done or said or even views they hold that I would find completely contrary to my own. Um, depending on which group of Christians you're standing with, I'm, you know, I'm a flaming liberal or I'm a fundamentalist. And the, the people who call me a fundamentalist, I'm like, clearly you don't know what that means. And the people right. who think I'm, you know, a raging liberal, I'm like, clearly you don't know what that means. Um, and so I think that when we, yeah, when we start to stand in judgment over judges, like, yeah, we have, I, we've almost reached the stage of the book, like right uh, by that name. And I, that's my concern. I would say that's my concern. When we arrive at the place where any one of us thinks we can stand in judgment of the judges, particularly the justices of the Supreme Court, and, you know, pick any one of them, um, but then as a group, consider all of them, consider them as a unit. And when we stand in judgment over the group, yeah, I think then I think I think we have a problem. I think we've reached a, a, a critical stage of conversation in the country. Yeah, I, I think you're right. You know, there there are ways for Congress to deal with the court within the Constitution. They can impeach members of the court if they wish to do that. They can amend the Constitution. They can change federal law to sort of get around a court decision and how to interpret the law. Um, but this is a different thing. You know, undermining the court's legitimacy uh can lead to very, very dark places for our country. Uh, our, our country has been founded upon the rule of law, that when the court makes a decision, when any court makes a decision, uh, other branches have to acknowledge the decision and the power of the court. Um, and that's part of how our system is just simply designed to work. If we move past that and we just get into purely political power, um, we're gonna go to, I, I would argue, a pretty dark place as a society. All right. Well, thank you for being a, uh, a point of light and thank you for um, what you're doing each and every day um, to, to lead others, not only into the light, but by the light. We appreciate it. That's Dr. Mark Caleb Smith. You can find him at Cedarville University, where he now serves as the dean of the School of Arts and Humanities. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. Let's take a moment to go upwards with Max Lucado. All right. In the four years of the pandemic, so, well, in the four years before the pandemic, so leading up to 2020, 34% of U.S. adults said they had attended church, synagogue, mosque, or temple. Uh, The overwhelming majority of those church. So the word church is going to get used in the rest of the conversation um, in this uh, Gallup poll. So again, in the four years prior to the pandemic, so 2016 through 2019, um, those years, in, in, you know, all encompassed, 34% of U.S. adults said they attended, let's say, church. All right. From 2020 to the present, the average has been 30%. So it hasn't, quote unquote, bounced back. And that 30% is a 10 percentage point drop from 2012. So in in the 11 years since 2012, there has been a 10 percentage point drop in the in the in US adults who say they have attended 
church. Yes, I, I understand that church here encompasses synagogue, mosque, and temple, but the overwhelming majority is church. So um, just to give you a quick point of reference, in 1955 and in 1958, the percentage was 49%. Now that's the highest on record. So, you know, even in the best of the quote unquote good old days of American church attendance, it still wasn't 50% of the population going to church. So let's just be really clear just how quote unquote Christian this country has ever been. Like, right, if 49% is the absolute high watermark, then it's always been less than 50%. But now it's a mere 30%. And we have churches obsessing about, hey, let's let's get back to doing it the way that we did it in the good old, the quote unquote good old days, forgetting that even in those good old days, less than 50% of the population found their way to church. And, I, and I'm saying it that way for a reason. We have to ask ourselves how God wants us to love and to serve the 70% of our neighbors nationwide who never attend church, never. They're literally not coming and they're not going to come. They're not gonna quote, find their own way to church, no matter how many welcome signs we put out, no matter how many welcome mats we roll out, no matter how many welcome programs we design. But we are so tempted to passively wait for people to come to church. And we have to resist that temptation. And so what's the kingdom corrective for just waiting for lost people to find their own way to church? That's what we're going to talk about. What is the kingdom corrective for just waiting around for lost people to find their way to church? Jeff Christofferson is going to be back in just a moment. Once you see is the novel approach to the conversation. Today we arrive at the fourth of the seven temptations of the Western church, and that's pacifism. Everybody is welcome. There's probably a kingdom corrective uh, to the temptation to just wait around until they come. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Hazardous smoke conditions across much of North America. Canadian wildfires. Mm -hmm. Jeff Christofferson is back. He is a Canadian wildfire of a different kind. (laughs) Good morning, sir. Good morning, Carmen. How are you? It's a fresh wind of the spirit. That's what I'm, I'm just saying. Where there's smoke, there's fire. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, on behalf of all of us in Canada, I apologize for our... <laughs> <laughs> okay. I won't make you keep doing that every time you come okay. on, unless you just all keep right. sending Thank smoke you. our way, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, all right, so we have arrived today at temptation number four. Um, it would be helpful for you know people who have slept since the last time that we talked, and for people who have not yet heard a conversation that you and I have had, uh, brief us in on Once You See, Seven Temptations of the Western Church, For those of you listening, it's a novel approach to the conversation about uh, where we are in the church today and the kingdom correctives um, offered in relationship to that. So we arrive today at temptation number four. So just briefly, Jeff, what's the list? Yeah, so I talk about philosophicalism, and that is this temptation towards a a hypothetical faith. We we say we're a a Bible-believing people, but what we mean that often is intellectual assent. We, we, We believe these facts, but understanding belief in New Testament is obedience. 
And uh, and so philosophicalism doesn't cut it, and it's actually the mother of all problems that I think we're seeing in the church. Second one is professionalism, and that's this temptation towards excellence. And uh, and we we celebrate. We have a gifted pastoral team, and we kind of contract out ministry to them. And uh, and that's another reason why we're in the situation we're in. Um, the third one is this temptation, what we call, I call present, presentationalism, and that is this temptation of a crowd, and uh, and we celebrate it by saying our worship is firing, our preach, preaching is strong, and, and we're trying to, actually, we see the church as a gathering, or we see the church as a crowd, and uh, again, it's uh it's fruit of that first one of philosophicalism where we we rather learn things about god than obey things and uh and that brings us to today and uh and that is this temptation towards comfort and uh and we i call this one passivism we we roll out the welcome mat we say everybody's welcome and uh and yet um doesn't seem to be working it doesn't seem to be the plan that Jesus had for us doesn't seem to be even the the uh, witness that we see in the book of acts of what what the uh what the methodology was uh and so that's where we are i like um the conversation that you lead us into and it is this story about being physically lost can you take us uh to saskatchewan Take me to, and uh, and what and. So and you talk, talk about, about growing up near the vast forested lakes of northern Saskatchewan, and this child being lost, and how terrifying that is. But there's only one thing you say um, more terrifying uh, than, or you know, than being lost, and that's knowing that nobody is looking for you. Thank you. Thanks for prompting what you were asking. That is right. I mean, can you imagine? Because I, I, uh, I think that's the reality of a lot of people, and and the the source of many of the the problems, maladies, mental illness is that there's no hope. Um, mm. People understand they're lost, and they don't see any hope or any way out of it. And um, and I think we're seeing that as epidemic in um, across North America. And so here we have. Um, Evangelicalism is is losing membership uh, at a, at a clip, a fast fast pace. I, I love the way you set this thing up, and you were being generous in your in your um, in your numbers just by the fact that you threw in every world religion in that that number. And uh, but evangelicalism is actually losing its it its market, <laughs> and. Um, and we we're trying to double down. We're trying to say we just need to do what we were doing, only do it better, harder, you know, more earnestly. And um, and it, it isn't working. The idea of um, generationally unchurched people driving across and seeing a church building, and uh, and they have about as much interest in what's going on there as perhaps maybe many in our audience do when they drive by a. A Kiwanis Club, or or the Royal Mel, uh, Order of Moose, and going, what's mm-hmm. what's going on in that lodge? There's just not a lot of interest there. Yeah, it, this this idea that we are sent as followers, of the one who came to seek and to save the lost, and we are sent by him on a rescue mission into enemy territory, at risk of our own lives, because it is by sacrifice that um, that we are saved. And how do we imagine that we can just sit comfortably, um, you know, I don't know, and post things on the Internet and expect people to come or put up a road sign and expect people to stop? 
Um, and, in, and so, you know, this is, uh, this is beggars who have found the food showing other beggars where the food is. That's one way of thinking about this. It's also people who have, you know, found the, uh, you know, found the door, found the exit from the burning building and, and staying inside and close enough to the flame. Yes. With the very chance that we're going to get scorched by it, but showing other people the way out, um, and yeah. so, yeah, and it, and how is beggars. a lost person, yeah, I mean, how is a lost person going to get unlost if no one goes to find them? And what makes it worse is that we are, to use your illustration, beggars, uh, telling other beggars, beggars, but we have actually beggars who have accustomed a certain taste, and we only like um, snails, and um, and we only like a certain kind of snail, and my and we and we begin to talk about our preferences, and all the things that we're talking about seem off-putting to everyone else around us, and so the thing that we're describing is something that no one even wants to try or taste, and um, and and Jesus has this whole other plan for us. When you think about the absurdity of the picture that Jesus painted for us, so here's here is a shepherd who has a hundred sheep, and um, and one of them is lost, and he says, you know, a normal uh, response is to leave the 99 that are safe and and go on this heroic mission for the one. That That's the normal response for for uh, someone with the heart of a father. And, um, and, and the reality is the numbers you just quoted, but if you just sort of factor those things really out and say okay what are what is the number of people that are in a relationship with Jesus Christ and and that number is going to range from maybe in, in in high urban areas five four or five percent um in in more, more rural areas that's going to go up but um but nationally in the United States you're looking you know not much more than than 10 to 15 percent probably and um and so we have 10 to 15 safe sheep in the sheep pen and we have 85 to 90 of them that are out there <laughs> lost without hope without That's looking terrible. knowing that no one's looking yeah and and we won't we won't leave our safe shape sheep pen to go after them why is that are we i mean is it genuine fear is it um is it our desire to just enjoy the comforts that that we have found like i'm i'm good you know i'm saved you know so what if everybody else goes to hell like that's a terrible like that's terrible is that really what we think it's it's starting to become what we think and how we how we pacify our our minds in it is that there's a growing trend towards universalism amongst evangelicals where mm. well maybe hell isn't a real place mm. maybe 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 there are other ways that we can get to God. Maybe maybe you know maybe this is my preferred way, but maybe other ways are good too. And you see that teaching or that idea actually becoming more normative in the in the hearts and minds of people who would call themselves Christian. And um, and so the the I think the problem is why why we're in this is it's a it's a fundamental misunderstanding of what the church of jesus christ is um for most of us so so let's do this let's do this let's leave that as the hook it's a fundamental misunderstanding of what the church of jesus christ is so we want to understand accurately what the church of jesus christ is and so we're going to continue this conversation in just a moment do you have an accurate understanding of what the church of jesus christ actually is 
And is it just a building with a welcome mat? Or is it a search and rescue mission? And if so, how do we get on it? That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. As we consider the life of Jesus and the life of the first generation of Christians, reading here the book of Acts and all the letters to the Christians in the New Testament, we see people who like wake up. They come to see and understand and then receive Jesus as their Savior and Lord. And it changes everything. We see Christians then telling other people about the good news and inviting them to respond in repentance, be baptized, and follow Jesus. The movement of Christianity grows person by person and then exponentially as people walking in darkness receive the light of Christ and want others to know what they know and have what they have. Well, you and I are living in dark days. People need light. And Jesus is the light of the world today in the same way that he was the light of the world at the beginning of creation and at the first Christmas and throughout his life on earth and in his radiance now at the right hand of the Father. Jesus is the light of the world. So if you're walking in darkness of any kind today, I invite you to consider Jesus. If you'd like to know more about what it means to begin a relationship with Christ or to chat with someone about it, just text the word FAITH to 41224. One of the characters that you meet in Once You See, which is a novel by Jeff Christofferson, um, one of the characters that you meet, his name is Luca. He's a PK. He is the son of a pastor. Um, and uh, he is still living in the neighborhood where his dad served his entire life. In fact, gave up his life, um, lost his life basically for the ministry, which finally kind of ate him up because after all these sheep bite. Um, and Luca uh, is making his way into a local jewelry store to buy his wife a gift. And they have had a, a renewal of um, not only a, a renewal of love, but a renewal of of interest and passion and God's really moving them in a, in a positive direction. So he wants to get her a, get her a cross on a chain as a gift. And so he goes into the local jewelry store. It's been the local jewelry store that he's known his entire life. Like this is his neighborhood. This is where his church has been. This is where he's grown up. Um, it's a gospel influenced place or so he believes. And he meets there Brenda who's in her thirties and um, she offers to help. And he says, well, I'm, you know, I'm looking for a cross on a dainty, a chain, a small gold cross on a dainty chain. And um, Brenda excitedly exclaims, <clears throat> this is on pages 57 and 58 of Once You See, oh, we have just the ticket, sir. And then she proceeded to carefully bring out two dark velvet, uh, blue velvet trays from the bottom corner shelf. By the dust covering the hinged lid case, it was obvious that these were not in high demand. Now, sir, we have both kinds. We have the plain ones and the ones with the little man on them. There are 14 karat gold. This row is 10 karat gold. Any of these catch your eye? Jeff Christofferson is with us. Um, the culture doesn't know the little man on the cross, and that should horrify us. Mm. Um, so talk with us about the Church of Jesus Christ and what it is called to be. And, and Carmen, that, yeah. that story is actually a real story. Um, I, it, it was by me and I was actually buying a cross for my wife and I went to a, a jewelry mm. store in a mall in, in the mm. city we live in. And I was met by a 30 some year old lady who gave me that same 
I, that same uh, choice, word for word. Uh, that's not fiction. <laughs> and uh, and that poses the reality of the condition that we're in, is people are not actively rejecting Christ. They have not heard the good news of Jesus Christ. And um, and so taking us to our... Um, the, the point that we're the what what is the church supposed to be we have a list of preferences most of the time we say well well you know i think a good church is a church that x y z um and 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 we have them usually related to somehow themes of of music or styles of music or styles of preaching um they're, they're things that are from a platform and they're blowing towards us that we sit on a pew. And, uh, and the, the reality is the church of Jesus Christ is to be an interdependent community of disciples who are um, engaging with each other, equipping one another, and actually going and living as a living testimony of what the kingdom of God is in the community that they live and and their their very essence their very lives are this foretaste of what of what it is to be in a relationship with Jesus Christ what it is to be a flourishing human and um and and so we we live in the midst of of this world this light that's in the midst of this darkness um this salt in the midst of this this blase world and uh, and the people around us the response would be should be if we were this people going i want that how do i how do i have that and then we first peter 3:15 them we give them hope we share gently and with respect this hope that we have because they're asking or seeing this difference we on the other hand have actually just turned everything towards us and uh and we think that the church of jesus christ is is an institution that we attend we pay for we and um and because we we pay for it we we put money in that collection plate everything that that we get to say <laughs> our our preferences are the things that really count and uh and we i think we've missed the whole the whole big idea how is the um movement leader collective going you know, it's an incredible thing. <laughs> it's uh, I think since um, COVID, um, there's been there's been two different responses. Um, there, a lot of churches have um, doubled down, said we're going to we're just going to do what we were doing and only do it harder. And they're actually the diminishing returns on on that are are experienced. And there's a lot of frustration amongst church leaders across North America. But there's also a um, a sense of exasperation by many saying um, <laughs> they're, they're watching their people actually. And it's interesting to see the phenomenon, the people who are, ha, are, are not coming back to church and who used to go to church. Uh, the, the predominant uh profile of them are people who are actually the ones who are most involved in church. They're the ones that were doing the work, uh, doing the ministry, you know, doing all the things to keep the wheels moving. Those are the ones that are not actually coming back at the same rate. And the people who are coming back are the ones who are looking for the goods and services that church, the church offered. And so 
so the the pastoral teams of churches are actually pulling their hair out going how how do we actually move this what's going on here and there's it's causing an angst amongst a lot of leaders in and going maybe we need to rethink this so uh, this this book that um i wrote the timing of it is actually it's it's touching a lot of people because like maybe there is a different way here a different way that is more biblically accurate and actually more historically um truthful to to the history of where 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 we have emerged from and uh, and so it, i'm hopeful i really am I'm hopeful as well. Um, you guys can check out movementleaderscollective.com. Um, and if you keep scrolling down, you can contact them and, um, and connect with them in ways that um, would be meaningful to you in your own context. Um, Jeff, I think one of the challenges that I hear from many, many people over and over and over again, and we don't have time to totally unpack this today, but um, you know, they, don't, they don't imagine that they're, the church that they're a part of is ever going to move in this direction. Um, and they and they really have a hard time imagining how they would even introduce such a shift in thinking to the leadership of their church. Could you just encourage them? It is a difficult thing in many cases. It's hard to get somebody to change the idea when their salary is dependent on the old idea. <laughs> and um, and so it's a it's a difficult thing, but there is a fresh wind that is blowing and um and and uh and you might find in your city um a, a group of people that you can actually engage with and think you might even be on your street it might be a person that's uh, from a different faith community a different a different tribe and uh but they love Jesus Christ and they want to see the people on your street come into a relationship with Jesus Christ maybe that's your opportunity to say okay let me put first things first and uh and let's let's make um G Jesus being known the gospel of Jesus Christ the most important thing for me and uh, and so I'm going to actually start a conversation with a neighbor down the street who goes to a different church and say, how do we actually start praying for our neighborhood? How do we actually um, start to offer opportunities, barbecues, whatever, to get to know our neighbors and uh, and see what God might do? Um, it's an incredible journey to be on. It's a rush. Thank you so much, as always. We look forward to our ongoing conversation with you. Um, we can't unsee uh, now that we've seen, so thank you so much. Hey, a book club um, is, a, is a great way uh, to engage with this material and with others in it. Once You See Seven Temptations of the Western Church, it is a novel. Jeff Christofferson is the author, and he joins us on a regular basis to continue to unpack this. Again, thanks so much, Jeff. Thank you, Carmen. God bless. Absolutely. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. All right, we got another hour of Mornings with Carmen up next. Remember, the text line is open. You can always text me during the show, 877-933-2484. What in the world is going on in the world? We're going to be talking about that next as we bring the mind of Christ to bear on the headline news of the day. Oh, take a deep breath today. And um, even if I know you're in a part of the country that is um, maybe overwhelmed by smoke, I still want you to take a deep breath of the Holy Spirit. Like, breathe in the grace of God. Take a deep breath. Hit the pause button. Settle into Christ. Dwell in the things of God today. Because it's out of those resources that you and I are going to be able to 
engage the world that God so loves in ways that honor Jesus. All glory to him. We got another hour up next. Thanks for listening to Mornings with Carmen LaBurge. Podcasts like this are available because of your support. If it's important to you to hear things that encourage your faith, click the link in the show notes to give now. And thanks.